In the opening paragraph of the opening chapter of a wonderful systematic theology book that is wonderful just for the sake that the title is Concise Theology, which gives you hope that you actually make it through it, J.I. Packer starts with this statement. Christianity is the true worship and service of the true God, humankind's creator and redeemer. It is a religion that rests on revelation. Nobody would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way had not God first acted to make himself known. But God has so acted. In the 66 books of the Bible, 39 written before Christ came and 27 after, are together the record, interpretation, expression, and embodiment of his self-disclosure. That second sentence is at the heart of what we're talking about this morning. We have a religion that rests on divine revelation. That's God revealing himself to his creation because we could not and would not find our way to him. We would not find our way to him because our hearts, born sinners by nature and choice, are desperately wicked. And we wouldn't on our own fathom a way that we would turn from wickedness on our own and try to turn towards him. And secondarily, even if we were inclined to do so, how possibly can man make his way to God? And so what this statement that I read this morning gets at the heart as, at is that religion, the Christian religion, is one that rests on God making himself known to his creation. We see that in Psalm 19. You could turn there uh, just to establish this idea that how he's made himself known to us comes in two ways. The psalmist writes, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That's his general revelation. And he, he, he doesn't use clouds spelled out in words that we identify. He just uses clouds themselves or mountains or rivers or birds or ocean, whatever it is that causes you to step back and, and for a moment wonder about your own existence in this universe and how you fit into it. Things that kind of take your breath away in creation. Something bigger than you. This is what Psalm 19 starts with saying, that God has revealed himself plainly in his works. And yet, verse 3 says, he doesn't use any speech. There's, there's no words. Their voice is not heard. He, he just does it by way of wowing us. But yet, that's not enough for us to make our way to him. It's enough to prick our hearts and in our conscience wonder, what am I on earth here to do? Once we, we stop at some point being so impressed by ourselves and we actually for a moment see there is such a, a bigger universe and a, 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 a mankind, seven billion people, whatever it is we find beauty and amazement in, but it's not enough for us to understand not just that we've been created, but we need recreated, we need redeemed, we need saved. Well, that's where Psalm 19 in verse 7 picks up. The law of the Lord is perfect restoring your soul. That, that hole that is in our hearts, that, that, that 
empty chasm that we cannot fill with whatever it is we pursue in this world, God has been gracious through the Word of God, the perfect law of God, the testimony of God, the precepts of God to restore us by His special revelation, His sufficient revelation, and His effectual revelation in the Word of God, but the highest point of the Word of God being revealed to man was actually in the Word made flesh, and that is the beginning of the Gospel of John, the Gospel that has at the end its purpose statement that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing I have life in His name, but the introduction to John's Gospel establishes that the Word was with God from the beginning and the Word became flesh and lived among us. God's revelation to us was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth, God, very God, the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. Verse 18 in in John ends by saying, no one has seen God, his spirit at any time, but his begotten son, who is in the bosom of the father, as in the closest relationship to, to understand who God the father is, is to know God the son. It says he has explained him. That's revelation. That God has revealed himself through his son. But without God revealing himself to us, what does that leave us? Leaves us helpless. And if we are helpless to find our way to God, then we are hopeless unless God finds his way to us. And that is why Packer starts his book on theology with a statement on revelation. God has to come down from heaven for earth to understand him. Jesus understood this about himself. He says in John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. He was telling that to Nicodemus who came to him by night, wondering how it is that somebody could truly know God and make it into the kingdom of God. And he says, unless heaven reveals that to you, unless heaven makes that known to you, you can't make that known for yourself. Just a few verses later in John chapter three, the greatest prophet in the time of Jesus, not counting Jesus, was John the Baptist. And people were amazed and impressed by his words. And some of them wanted to start a little bit of a rivalry perhaps drive a wedge between them when the disciples of John came to him and said, hey, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, whom you have testified, do you know that he's, he's baptizing and all are coming to him? John responds, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. He understands revelation. He understands his own place in the theme of redemption, that he is, is merely a prophet, merely one who is speaking on behalf of God, but not because he could reach up into heaven and grab those words from himself, that God is the one that puts those words in him to speak. Revelation is top down. It's a one-way street in that it comes down from heaven to earth. It's the way that God has revealed himself to us through his spoken and written word. But of course, the high point of all revelation is the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So God revealing himself to us, if we had to summarize it, is an act of his divine grace. To say it another way, as we talk about spiritual gifts, God's revelation is a gracious gift to us. 
It's not something we earn, achieve, work for, demand, have a right to. It's his gracious revelation to us. And that brings us back to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is reminding this church who is getting caught up in their own headlines, thinking that the gifts that they have somehow are originating and terminating on them. They're believing their own hype. And whoever has the bigger and better gift should be the person that most people revere. And Paul's like, that's not how spiritual gifts are to be stewarded. They are gifts to be stewarded. They are not a way for you to make much of yourself and to promote your own authority and own agenda as if you have one outside of who? The spirit who gave them the Lord whom you serve, and God who works all things and all people. The triune God is the one whom gifts are from and through and to. So that's where we have been over the last month. And Paul had to establish this baseline because this church, as gifted as it was, he says you have, you have all the gifts in chapter 1. But in the celebration of those gifts, it turned inward and gifts started to shine more brightly than the spiritual graces that are to be the fruit of them. That the true sign of the Spirit's work in a person's life is the affections on the inside, the fruits of the Spirit. And when division and a spirit of pride and divisiveness, and I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, Paul spots that a mile away and says, you have lost your way when you think the gifts are more important than the graces. Because as we've already looked at in this church by way of the pagan culture around them, the gifts can be counterfeited. There, there can be false manifestations of these gifts. And so how are you going to understand the difference between them? Well, you have to teach on them. You have to go back to the foundational piece, which is no one actually has a spiritual gift if they don't have the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, you can't genuinely, authentically, savingly claim Jesus as Lord unless you have the Holy Spirit of God working in your heart. And we established that. And so now he is moving on in the list, starting in verse 8, and saying, let me tell you about these gifts you have, but I want to warn you that if you have the gifts without the graces, it's mere performance. If it's about what you get out of it and how you are promoted and people think much of you, you have lost your way. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, church. Let's just teach you a little bit, instruct you, correct you, rebuke you, as 2 Timothy 3.17 says, the word of God should do for us. Train you in righteousness so that you would be equipped for every good work, which is the point in verse 7. Look at it. Everyone is given the manifestation of the Spirit's work in their lives for the common good. The gifts are for the good of the church, not to show off yourself and make much of you. Now, when we talk today in 10 and 11, talking about the gifts of prophecy in tongues, those two gifts were probably, when you, when you look at how much attention they're later given in chapter 14, that he has to revisit them and dedicate more space to them, they were probably at the top of the list 
of what people were saying, those are the most important, most impressive, most exhilarating, most exciting gifts. So interestingly enough, when Paul lists the gifts, he saves them for last. You know, the kid on your team that wants to make the most of himself, boast himself the most, when it comes time, you know, to pass out the jersey or to give out the thing at the end, you kind of have this tendency, I'm gonna put you last, try to teach you this lesson. I don't know if that's Paul's intention, but it might have caught the eye of, of some of those in Corinth that when they were thinking, oh, he's gonna tell us about the gifts and they have to wait till verse 10 and 11 to see, oh, okay, down at the bottom of the list. It's not saying they're not as important, that that's not the point. It's saying that they shouldn't always be in the forefront like they were. Because if you were to take a class picture of the spiritual gifts, the way that the people in Corinth were handling tongues and prophecy were the people that were trying to push to the front of the picture for everybody to see. But that's not the reason the Spirit gave the gifts. He gave the gifts so there would be one person in the foreground. Who? Christ. And everybody else is in the background. Now maybe tongues and prophecies start jumping around to you know, be seen in the background. Who knows? But all I'm saying is it seems the tone and direction of how Paul has to teach in 12 through 14 as a whole is saying, hey, you guys have put some things in the foreground that should not be because all of these are to point to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who the Holy Spirit is always directing our attention and affection to. Not the gifts themselves. So the question then to be asked when it comes to prophecy in tongues, when you think about that for a moment, the question I'll ask and we'll answer today, and this isn't a word of uh, prophecy or anything other than the fact that I'm just not going to get the tongues today. So there you go. We'll only get the prophecy today. But the question you asked with these two, and they relate to 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. If you remember, uh, we taught on uh, that a few weeks back, is that the word of God is inspired. It, it's breathed out by God, and it, it's truthful. It establishes its, its veracity, its authority. But it's meant to be useful. It's for the good of building up. It's instructive. It's corrective. It's training. Well, we, we came up with those two terms, remember? God's word is truthful, and it's useful. And I want that to be in our minds this morning as we look at prophecy in tongues because truly those are the two aspects of uh, prophecy in tongues that need to be addressed. When it comes to a word of prophecy, the question that would have been permeating throughout the congregation in Corinth would have been, is this truth, truthful? Not is it useful? It, it was understood that to speak a word of prophecy in 55 AD, only uh, a few decades after Christ has left, and the word of God is not inscripturated yet in the New Testament, and you can't, as you're debating an issue in the church, or somebody stands up to teach, say, turn in your Bibles to. You didn't have that option. So for somebody to have a word from God was the most useful thing there would be. The question was a matter of, is it truthful? Because there were what? There were counterfeits. So when we think about prophecy, I want the question in your mind to be, when, when you hear about somebody that thinks they have a prophetic gift or says they have a word from the Lord, however they want to phrase it, the fundamental question to answer is, is it truthful? Because you can assume it's useful. If it's a word from God, it's useful. 
The question is, is it truthful? What's its origin? And then next week, we'll get to the question of, is when we ask about tongues, is it useful? Because if something is unintelligible, then as Paul talks about in chapter 14, it terminates just on you. At best, at best, it's something for you. But how does it fulfill the role that the gifts are to, as he says, serve the common good of the church? So the tongues is a question of usefulness, but let's start today with a question of truthfulness, asking about prophecy. Verse 10, to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits. That word prophecy, cover to cover in scripture, from beginning to end. Why? Because prophecy is about revelation. It's about someone having a word from God through that person to someone else. The most generic definition I can give you of it, which would be the most fair definition to give, is that it's, it's a, word of, a word from God through man to men. I mean, that's what it just comes down to. It's revelation. And that's how God had to work from the beginning through the end, is someone speaking is a mouthpiece for God. Uh, the first account we get of a person who is prophesying, and maybe if you go on Jeopardy one day, you can win, uh, is Enoch. Seventh generation from Adam, Jude 14 tells us. It says Enoch prophesied. What was he prophesying? This is pretty interesting to think about. Seven generations from Adam, he's still alive. But Enoch, who Genesis 5 says walked with God and then he was not, he did live a couple hundred years what was his purpose on earth? He was a prophet. And he went around and, hey, we get an early prophecy. When Jude 14, 15 says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I mean, case for total depravity. What was this early prophet's message seven generations removed from Adam and Eve? They are living in an ungodly time, doing ungodly deeds in ungodly ways and ungodly sinners. Sad, but it's true. It's, it got that bad that fast. So God gave a word to Enoch. Imagine being Enoch. I mean, we, always, we just read the Genesis part and like, what a, must have been an awesome thing, man. He got to get taken up. I wonder if God had to take him up because, you know, they're coming for him. This is, I mean, if you walked around the world and that was your message, hey, the Lord's coming to execute judgment upon all and convict all y'all ungodly sinners of ungodly deeds, ungodly ways. He was prophet. He had a word from God through him to man. We come across um, in uh, 2 Peter 2.5 that Noah had a prophetic ministry in that he was a herald of righteousness. And in Hebrews 11, in the chapter of faith, it says that Noah being warned by God, so where did that message have to come from? Heaven. Warned by God about things not yet seen. There is that future element to it. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which, and here's the prophetic uh, judgment of his building the ark. He condemned the world. 
but he became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. It says in 2 Peter 2.5, he's a herald of righteousness. He was heralding it by his own very actions when everybody's looking around going, why are you building that thing? What, that thing you're building? What is that again? It's called a boat. And what do you plan on doing? Getting into it. Why? Because there's going to be a flood. Really? He was a herald of righteousness, both in word and in deed. Um, Abraham is actually called a prophet by King Abimelech in Genesis 27, and that's all we get there. But the most well-known Old Testament prophet, and this would also be you know, a Jeopardy answer too, would be Moses. Moses spoke to God. God spoke to him. They spoke face to face. Numbers 12, whenever there are uh, complainers, Moses' own family, Miriam and Aaron, speaking against Moses, saying, oh, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Yeah, yeah, you don't want to do that. Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. So this is what God said. The Lord came down on a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, this is what God said. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, someone that hears from me, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, face to face in my presence even openly, not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. That's pretty unique. In the presence of Yahweh, whom is spirit, but yet he can even behold the form of the Lord, and, and it's clear, it's, it's direct from God to Moses as God's mediator to Israel, the role of a prophet. Deuteronomy Chapter 18, Moses describes his role as a prophet, but there'll be a greater one than him. Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Verse 18, I will, the Lord said to me, I will raise up a prophet from their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. I mean, there's a good working definition for a prophet in the Bible. I will put my words in in his mouth, divine origins. And he'll speak to them all that I command him. So there you have it. The role of a prophet, divine revelation given to a man to speak for God and, and to reveal whatever it is God wants to reveal. Who God is, that would be the starting point. There is a God, a one true God. His name is Yahweh. What he is like. We just rehearsed it today with Joel, didn't we? slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. What he commands, what he expects. And in that expectation, what might be the consequence for not obeying him? So a prophet could include any, any one of those aspects, speaking on behalf of God, telling the people who God is. He is the one true God amongst all the world, all these gods. Here's what he's like. How possibly could we know what he's like if he hasn't told us? Here's what he expects. Here's his commands. Here's his decrees. Here's his law. And yes, a word of warning, a word of foretelling, which is 
If you do not comply with what he expects, this is the result you should expect. And that's really probably what most of you, when you have engaged with prophecy in the Old Testament, might come to think of. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these warnings and warnings and warnings to Israel. Based on what? God's revelation to those prophets. So, so that would be the word we get from the Old Testament. Paul writing to Corinth, the issue at hand here that he has to deal with is, is not that there's people that they would expect to speak from God. It was to know how can we determine if what they're saying is truthful because what we have here in Corinth is it's a confluence of pagan religion that had forms of prophecy in it and these people are showing up in our church and saying they're saved, but they might not be. They might be false believers, and their words or their tongues could be demonically inspired. So that's why I look back in verse 10. It's key to distinguish the spirits. Let me give you a picture of what this... Um, Greek world would have been like long before Christianity hit the scene around Corinth, even by 1400 BC, you had the temple of Apollos on Mount Parnassus located above the slopes or above the Corinthian Gulf. And this was a place where false worship would take place to all the, the, the gods that all the Greeks could come up with. But there was a particular place in Apollos' temple called the Oracle of Delphi. And this was, at that time period, from 1400 BC into the time of Paul, in the Greek world, the most important religious shrine. This Oracle of Delphi, and this was some uh, historian's artistic rendering of what he would have thought this looked like. She was a virgin priestess a local girl from the village who would speak in um, ecstatic utterances, as you can see there, and these priests, pagans, would interpret and give a prophetic word from this oracle of Delphi. And the Greeks were so enamored with this that they considered whatever the Delphic oracle said to be the final authority on all matters religious, political, and social. So put this together in your mind. Your Paul, who actually has a word from God and is a prophet and has apostolic authority, <clears throat> with these people coming into the church. And how do you help your people discern between what is false and what is true when this is their background? The same things that these Christians were doing and saying, signs and wonders, a prophetic word, a predictive element, an, an utterance that doesn't make any sense, but somebody says, oh, I can interpret that. How were you to know what's true and what's false? Because like I've said all along, by outward appearances, they might look the same. You know, we use the phrase, all that glitters isn't gold. Well, in Corinth, all that is uttered isn't God. And this is Paul trying to help this church because they are being led astray with the presence of false prophets and false prophecies. Just because someone said something that sounds prophetic in a service doesn't make it true, believable, and faithful to the word of God. Paul's solution is there in this phrase, distinguishing of spirits. 
That word, being able to distinguish, is a word for discernment. Being able to tell the, the true from the false. Something from God versus something from a demonic spirit. Uh, go to Acts 16. You see an example of this in Paul's ministry. He's in Philippi, and the church is growing there. And in verse 16, we pick up on the action. It happened that as we were going to a place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. So there's a spirit of divination in the slave girl. She's, she's not a convert, but she has a spirit of divination. There, there it is. There's a counterfeit right there. And she's bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, she has an accurate message. But the origins of that, the spirit of divination, Paul is able to discern are not from God. Just like in the time of Jesus. And we saw this all throughout the Gospel of Mark when we preached through it. That when Jesus showed up and taught the truth in synagogues, when the light came into the darkness, what did the darkness want to do? It wanted to flee. And so these demon-filled attendees of the synagogue would out themselves and say to Jesus, what do you have to do with us, son of the most high God? Leave us alone. The demoniac was the one who came charging at Jesus because they knew who they were in the presence of. And James tells us that. Demons know who God is. They don't worship him, but they know who he is. They have knowledge. So this demon-possessed girl has the knowledge to point out, hey, Paul is a servant of the Most High God, proclaiming you the way of salvation. And verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. And Paul was greatly annoyed. I mean, he even gets that way, friends. Feel better about yourselves. Turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. So I just use that to illustrate in, in Paul's time. He clearly had this gift to, to be able to discern and distinguish a true spirit from a false spirit. And yet, pay attention, it wasn't based on the content of what this person said. It was knowing us something about this slave girl's life. Now, it would have been easy to recognize if she's foretelling and, and prophesying about the future to make money for her pagan bosses where that gift is coming from. So Paul's solution is to be discerning, distinguishing, being able to separate the true from the false. And guess what, friends? Let's go back in the Bible again. Just as this idea of a prophet being somebody who speaks for God is nothing new under the sun, having false prophets is nothing new under the sun, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. How did God teach Israel to deal with false prophets in their day? Well, you kind of see um, three aspects in Deuteronomy 13, and then I'll link it to Deuteronomy 18, and then I'll link it to the New Testament so that we can actually have discernment. Because we live in an evangelicalism today, a lot of different views on this gift of prophecy. And based on the denomination you come out of, based on the teaching and the interpretation they take, would take you in a lot of different directions. I'm taking a most general direction, which is this is a word from God through man to men. It's, it's divine revelation. 
Because if we, if we make up a new definition for prophecy as something other than that, then the whole thing falls apart because if you actually got a word from God and it didn't come true, it wasn't a word from God because God can't lie, right? It's like kind of the secret to the whole thing. If it, if it doesn't come to pass, if it doesn't check out with the word, like, are you making God a liar? No, you are. So we'll see kind of the paradigm for that starting in Deuteronomy 13. There were prophets. God gifted Moses the prophet back in Numbers 11. He said, I'm going to put my spirit of prophecy in a bunch of other guys to help Moses out. So he's not the only one speaking for me. Well, how do you deal with these false prophets? Deuteronomy 13 says, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a, how about this, a sign or of a wonder, sign or wonder, as in there is, some, they, they're going to have some ability to do something to, to make you go, wow, just like in Corinth. But the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you and afterwards says, let us go after other gods whom you do not know and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet. How about that? So they're using their sign or wonder or their prediction, their foretelling of the future. It comes true and they turn around and say, aha, we should go follow this other God. Bad doctrine. There is no other God to follow. So the first way you, you sniff out a false prophet is what? It's a doctrinal test. It's a doctrinal test. It doesn't matter what sign or wonder the person does. If Yahweh's that way, and they tell you to go that way, and they're shooting flames out of their hands, you go Yahweh's way. You complete all this stuff. Now look what, what was happening here. Verse 3, the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow him. He's allowing that to happen. He wants to see. Are you going to be Israel? Are you going to be just taken away by things that you can see, appearances only? You got to be wowed by the next big thing? Or does my word stand in authority over that miracle, that sign, that wonder, that prophecy? Because if you get caught up in that and it starts to turn you from following me faithfully, you're going the wrong way. It'll be to your own destruction. Now look at the consequence for this person. That prophet or dreamer of dreams, Deuteronomy 13.5, shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So Old Testament people of God in Israel, first test is a doctrinal one. If they're going to move you one inch from 100% devotion and fidelity to God, they're out. Doctrinal test. Who do you believe? Who's your one true God? You could discount all the smoke and mirrors, all the... doesn't matter. They want you to turn from Him, discard them. They're not the real thing. Second, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We were already there when Moses was prophesying. It's like the ultimate prophecy because Moses the prophet is prophesying that another prophet will come who's the ultimate prophet, Jesus. Four-part prophet. But Deuteronomy 18 verse 9, when, the Lord, when you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall be found among you anyone who makes a son or his daughter pass through the fire. Well, what's the detestable things? How about child sacrifice? So 
That's pretty detestable. I mean, that's peak detestability. And that's a moral test. That's an ethical test. You look at the person's life. It doesn't matter. Look what it says. They have divination. They can interpret things. They're a sorcerer. They can cast spells, medium, spiritists. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these detestable things, the Lord God will drive them out. You shall be blameless. Don't be like the nations. Doctrinal test, part one. Ethical test, part two. If they're acting in a way that is contrary to the holiness with which God requires of you, go the other direction. Get them out of your midst. They fail that test. Now, the third dimension to the test of a prophet comes down in verse 19 through 22 of Deuteronomy 18. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, verse 20, that I've not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods. So two ways this person can speak error is, A, he says he has a word from God and it's not a word from God. B, he speaks in the name of other gods. Either way, that prophet shall die. Pretty strict consequence. Now, verse 21, same question we're asking in Corinth, they're asking here. How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do we know if it's true? So the third dimension is when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. That prophet spoke presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. He shall die. So the third test, you have a doctrinal test, you have an ethical test, and now you have an effect test. And and again, this comes kind of third in line because not all words from God, prophetic words, have to be future-oriented. They can just be a word about who God is and what he said. They can have a future dimension to them, but I mentioned it earlier, I've got a word from the Lord. Brother, you are to go and do this in this place and this is going to happen. And it doesn't come to pass. It's not a word from the Lord. Otherwise, you made, you just said, God told you to say this and it didn't come to pass. There's not an extra category for that. God's either 100% right 100% of the time or he's not. And if he's not, he's not perfect. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. You see where this leaves you with prophecy? It's, it's that serious. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12 in the New Testament and think about the purpose of it. Paul's calling for discernment. He's saying that if it's wrong, if, if, it, if it is wrong, the only way you're going to know it's wrong is if somebody has the ability to distinguish spirits. So that has to come part and parcel with this gift of prophecy. So go to chapter 14. He gives an instruction. For all, verse 31, chapter 14, for you can all prophesy one by one. He's not saying that all are prophets because not all have that gift. Everybody doesn't get all the gifts. He's just saying you can all, as in kind of collectively, if if people need to do this, do it orderly one by one so that everybody can learn and be exhorted. Why? The purpose is edification. Back in verse three, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification. That's the goal of it, to build up the body. It's not to build you up. It's not just to be about you. This word from God to men is to edify others, exhort them, console them, 
The one who prophesies edifies the church. So back to verse 31. Do it in an orderly fashion so everybody can learn and be exhorted. Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. You're just not flying off in your own direction saying, I've got a word of the Lord and no one can challenge it. If you just back up one verse, verse 30, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. How about that? So this person's saying they have a word from God, saying they do, but this person hears something going, I don't think so. This person has to give way to that person, not to shout them down. But now you're going to find out, hey, who's got the right word here? They don't have apostolic authority. So if it's really a word from the Lord, but this next person goes, oh no, I, what do you have to do with it now? That's why spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. Uh, go over to 1 John 4. You have uh, a, a similar, I wouldn't say identical scenario because 1 John 4 is a cyclical letter. There's no specific church in mind with a particular problem. John is writing this letter, 1 John, near the end of the close of the canon, 90 AD, or 90, BC, 90 AD, and a lot of false teaching is going around denying that Jesus Christ came in bodily form. That's kind of the opening of this letter that John writes, people denying Jesus Christ was fully man. But this, the test here is... 1 John 4, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here's how you're going to know. Here's the first test. Now listen for the similarity in the connection back to Deuteronomy 13. Verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is 90 AD. We're talking when Moses is, you know, putting the Torah together. We're talking uh, 1400 BC. So a passage of time of 1500 years. And guess what? It's the same issue. It's a doctrinal test. Whether it was somebody that was going to tell you not to follow Yahweh in Deuteronomy 13, or whether it's someone here saying don't follow Jesus Christ. He's not the son of God. He's not from God. It's the same first test. So why should it be any different for us today? that the first thing we judge about any word that somebody says they have that's from God is this. Are you absolutely sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter this person's clout, notoriety, position, fame, importance, the doctrinal test, the confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as Lord, as King, as God, very God, and they do not move an inch from that. You get anything less than that, you have a false prophet. Anything less than that. That's the first test. It hasn't changed from the time of Deuteronomy to the time of John writing one of the final epistles for the New Testament. It's a doctrinal test. You want to test what a prophet, who a prophet is, true or false? Talk to them about Christ. That's it. That's the, I'm not saying that's the only test, but that's the first test. And then, of course, in talking about Christ, you're talking about the gospel. Do they have the gospel right? You see the similarity between what we talked about a few weeks ago with healings? The first test we asked of somebody that says they have the gift of healing, did they get Christ right? Did they get the gospel right? Or have they added something into the gospel about what? You know, you, you could, when, you, when you get born again, now you have control to speak whatever over all the cells in your body to heal your, no. You're mixing something else into the gospel 
which makes it not the gospel. So that's what you have here. John's giving this test of doctrine, and that's all throughout 1 John. But that's not the only test to distinguish the spirits. Uh, turn over a couple chapters to, or a couple letters to 2 Peter. There's also a moral test that you can give that Peter in his final letter leaves. It's, not, it's no longer just a doctrinal test about who Jesus is and what he's done. As Peter in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 closes chapter 1 talking about that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of a one's own interpretation because prophecy was never made by an act of the human will. How similar does this sound to what we've already learned so far? Here's what prophecy is. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Do you see the continuity in your Bible on this issue? Nothing is changing from God saying to Moses, the, the, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, I'll put my words in your mouth. You're my mediator. You're going to speak to the world from me through you to them. What's, how's Peter explaining prophecy? It's never an act of the human will. They're never conjuring it up themselves. It's men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now here's another test you can apply to them. Start at chapter 2. Second Peter, false prophets arose from the people, just as there will be false teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, you may not be able to sniff that destructive heresy out because it's secretly introduced. So how are you going to identify these people? Identify them by their lifestyle. Look at verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Deuteronomy 18, the moral test, the ethical test, the detestable life. If that's the mark of this person, no matter what they might say that sounds close to the truth, if you look at the overall effect of their life, sensuality, worldliness, greed, all the things the world's going after, they're going after the same thing, guess what test they fail? The morality test, the ethical test. I mean, it's the same test of having assurance in 1 John, isn't it? The ethical test? I mean, we talked about it this morning. If you say you don't have sin, you lie. <laughs> or failing this ethical test in, in 1 John 1, right out of the gates, it the failure to, to say that what you're doing is sin, if we say we have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's the failure of the moral test of a true Christian. Same would be for a true prophet. So you got, an, you got this ethical test in there in Second Peter. And so you match those two up and then you come back to the time of Paul and, or the, the letter to, of Paul to the Corinthians and he's, he's saying, look, why you have to be able to distinguish between spirits because it may be something doctrinal you hear, it may be something ethical or moral that you see, but you have to be able to discern between those. Because Jesus said in Matthew seven fifteen, loud and clear, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves i mean just let that hit you for a moment they come to you what looking like a sheep talking like a sheep walking like a sheep smelling like a sheep 
but they want to eat you. They're a wolf. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So they may come in and buddy up to you, and you like them, and they seem all the... I mean, they can fake you out. But they're a wolf. And how will you know that? Verse 16, there's a cause and effect. There's time and truth going hand in hand. You will know them by their fruits. There's the ethical test again. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree can't produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Look, because they're wolves in sheep's clothing and they're trying to deceive, you won't maybe, you, if, you know, again, because the gift of distinguishing spirits isn't given in equal measure to everybody, and it can be easy to be fooled, and you won't know right away, but over time, if you watch their life closely, you'll see it's fraudulent. But it takes time. I mean, right now, we attempted to plant some things around our house, and uh, I didn't have the soil ready, so my wife just threw the seeds that all look the same into a bunch of uh, styrofoam cups to get them started before we plant them. And you know, a month in, they've started to grow, but they still all look the same. We don't know what we have at this point anymore. We just put them in the ground. We'll find out later. There's a delay between what's starting to grow. I've got something. I just don't know what that something is. And if my kids keep running over that little garden, we won't ever know. (laughs) But the principle is time and truth will go hand in hand. You will know them by their fruits. That's when you'll know they're a wolf. The, 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 The warning is to beware that they're out there. To watch out for them. Apply the doctrinal test. Apply the moral test. And yes, If this so-called prophet is into trying to predict the future and they don't, I mean, that's the easiest one there is. You can't say, I've been given a word from God. He told me who's going to win in 2024. And you're wrong. You're wrong. You're done. You have no ministry. You have no platform. We don't give these people a pass. If you're going to say, God told me, then you're a liar because he didn't tell you. It didn't come true. And you can't backpedal and say, oh, you know, I, no. That's the whole point. Don't be a sucker. If they don't predict it, if it's wrong, if it doesn't come out, they're a false prophet. It's a weighty thing to stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and tell people something and make them bank on some promise, make them hope in some future that you have no right to tell them to hope in or promise on and it doesn't come through and say, you know what, sometimes prophets can get it wrong. I'm like 80%. I mean, like, hey, if I hit 800 in baseball, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. Come on, cut me a break. That's not God's standard for God's speaker. It's his word. If he really gave you the word, it wasn't gonna be wrong at all. Not 50%, 60%, 70%, 99%. Because he knows the beginning from the end. In him is no darkness. There's no doubt that God knows everything about the future. And so if he gives a word to a prophet to speak about it and it comes to pass, maybe you got one on your hands. 
but you've got to still pass those other tests. Is, is their doctrine all around everything they want to make their ministry about sound? Is their life sound? I mean, how does that hit us practically? Um, I mean, because when you think about this, I mean, this could land in the church in a lot of different ways. You know, brother, I have a word for you. I remember I was in college. I went to Christian school, Indiana. You know, theology was mile wide, inch deep. And I was in the shallow of the shallow end. I didn't know much. Um, and I remember one time somebody coming up to me. I was walking across campus, going to a youth event. I was going to be a kind of a youth leader that night. And, you know, this young lady runs up to me and says, Adam, I have a word, of, word from God for you. Oh, okay. When you get around those teenagers tonight, you need to speak the truth to them. I said, I, I planned on it. <laughs> but I said, thank you. Because it did encourage me. And if that was a word of prophecy, it's meant to be what? Encouraging. Edifying. And I mean, if you pass that, if you just run that simple, make sure you speak the truth to these kids tonight. I hope it wasn't that my reputation was one of not doing that, that she felt so inclined. But, you know, that squares with what God's word says we're to do. Speak the truth in love. All right, whatever are the verses you would want to build up around that. But when I've had other, you know, guys, and, and again, because you had so many different denominations coming together at that campus, trying to speak specific words about my future not coming to pass, this is where, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, this is where, in a world where there is no regulator on people feeling they have a prophetic word for you, and the idea of distinguishing spirits is not taught and discernment isn't highlighted, somebody like me could get kind of cynical about a word for me. So listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now your Bible puts all those uh, verse numbers in and makes it feel like real staccato that like you could just take these and they stand alone. But when you read that in light of what we're talking about, and mind you, uh, this letter to the Thessalonians was, was also an early letter to the church. It's one of the first ones around the same time as 1 Corinthians. Again, they don't have inscripturated Bible passing around the churches to say, now let's open up and teach from here. There was a lot of what? Prophetic Utterances, words that people had that God was inspiring. And in these contexts, whether Corinth or Thessalonica, because of the presence of false prophets and false teaching, you could have been a Christian there kind of getting exasperated and a little bit cynical about somebody having another word. Right? So Paul has to give them an admonition. Hey, don't quench the spirit by despising prophetic utterances. He's like, don't just throw it all away. Don't ignore it. Don't exalt it as in, oh, whatever they say, I'll believe. What's the solution? 
Same one that we've been driving at all day today. Examine everything. Use discernment. Distinguish. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. That's how you're going to be able to do it. But don't, don't get jaded about it and let your experiences drive your theology rather than the other way around. People will accommodate a theology, and they'll adapt it to their experience. And, it would, and we, they, you can do this, especially on issues of tongues and prophecy. You can come at this from either side. If your experience is whatever it was growing up in the church, you'll adopt a theology that accommodates that experience. And so you have to be open, as we've been in this time of teaching, to what the Word of God says to allow your theology to now inform your experience. The other way around, if you grew up in an experience where it was just assumed that none of this exists, no way, no how, it's all over with, then you'll adopt a theology that also tells you that. But see, every time we open up the Word of God, and my job as a preacher is to just let you see it for yourself. Let you hear it for yourself. Let the Spirit of God teach you and inform your theology, and even test it. Every time you come to an expository sermon, both the preacher and the listener, your theology is being tested. It doesn't get a pass. The Word of God tests it, because that's what our theology comes out of. It doesn't come out of our experience. You don't build a theology out of your experiences can't live that way because your theology what you know about who God is and what he is like that's what carries you and that's the effort we make to try to teach it to you to say well I got I've I've seen it in, my, in front of my own two eyes today it's hard to argue with this when it's taught what clearly when you said open up to this page and go look at it for yourself and link it to this page and see how that fits together and don't just take that one verse and piggyback on it and proof text it and don't hold scripture against scripture and try to make them enemies when they're friends that it fits together and that's the joy of learning all this you know the great part about this all that is really what should bring us the greatest joy is that it empowers us and enlivens us and it moves us to do ministry that the last thing that we should be standing around doing is just debating over this stuff rather than going out and using the gifts God's given us. I mean, that's, that's the joy of it. That's where the fun is. You see this um, recently in the passing of two really um, significant uh, pastors in the PCA. Uh, Harry Reeder and then Tim Keller died within a day of each other on a Thursday, Friday. And um, both wonderfully gifted men gifted teachers, clearly spirit of wisdom, spirit of knowledge, all of it. But you know what's really amazing to see in the days since then? Is everybody paying tribute to them? And there's this, you know, clearly, I mean, they're, they're, they're preaching ministries, amazing. And, but you know what was said about them more than anything else? The spiritual graces. They loved God. They loved their wife. They loved their kids. They loved their church. They were a joy to be around. They were a peacemaker. They were humble. Don't you, that's what we want, isn't it? 
Oh, you know, man, his, his prophecy ministry and tongue speaking, going to miss it. No, they're going to miss you because of the spiritual graces that those spiritual gifts were there to serve. That's what you once said about you. Because all those spiritual graces in summation, you know what they are? They're the greatest work the Holy Spirit does in your life. He conforms you to the image of Christ. That's far better than any gift. He makes you more like Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for its clarity, for its power. From beginning to end, Lord, that we get a word, a more sure word that Peter calls it, one that we can bank on. Lord, we thank you that you have given us even a prescription for how to discern and distinguish that we're not left to our own uh, rational thinking and reason because that can be wrong. But we can look to your word and see how we are to appropriate that which we hear around us from a teacher, a preacher, a friend, whoever it might be that may say they have a word from God for us. That we, would, we rejoice. We don't despise that. But we also don't just live ignorantly. You want us to live according to the wisdom you give us in your word and guide us by your spirit. And we praise you for that. Thank you for that. And thank you that ultimately all of it points to Christ. Because it's him we love. For it's he who died for us. It's he who rose for us. It's he who prepares a place for us. It's him who we long to be like. It's him who we want to be conformed to by your precious work in our lives. Amen.